I had finally made it through the line at Monterey Market. You know, the, the one that goes all the way down the mushroom aisle? That one. I'd finally made it through that line and was unloading my groceries when my son spied the jar of honey sticks at the register. He always finds the jar of honey sticks at the register, and I always say no. And I felt that knee-jerk response of no welling up in me. But then, somehow, I actually heard how kindly he had asked for said honey stick, and... And then I remembered that I was also in the middle of an experiment of trying to say yes to my children as often as possible, no matter the request. <laughs> and so I closed my eyes and switched gears. And I said, yes, yes, you may have a honey stick. Thinking, gosh, you know, it's just a honey stick. He was elated. I turned back to unloading my produce when I heard the man ahead of me mumble something in my direction. And so I stopped and I looked up and I asked him what he had said. And speaking up this time, he repeated himself. You're a pushover. I laughed, just like this, I laughed. And then I realized it wasn't a joke, it was a dig. People don't have much room for a pushover. Not even over a honey stick for a three-year-old. It wasn't a good idea to be a pushover in Jesus' time either, maybe even less so, with classes and power so striated, it made caving to someone else's demands seem like a pretty dangerous proposition. Let's remember who is here listening to him on the plane. His freshly called disciples who have just left their simple lives for an even more tenuous way of being. Then there are the crowds, people from all over who are hoping to be healed and freed. If they are sick, if they have demons, these, these people are on hard times. Work would have been difficult to come by and their illnesses would have likely cast them to the margins of their communities, forcing them to beg to get by. They would be without power, without status, without voice. And they believe Jesus and the power he wields may be their one chance for a better life. Jesus has just finished teaching them this counterintuitive way of understanding blessing and woe, 
that we heard about last week. And then he launches into yet another teaching that turns everything upside down. Forgive your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Be wildly generous. Offer mercy. Lend what you have, expecting nothing in return. It is astonishing. I can imagine their dropped jaws, their confusion, probably even their frustration. I mean, wait, after everything these people have been through, everything that has been taken from them, all the ways they have been trampled, now this guy is telling them to give more? to be kind to the jerks oppressing them, to let it all go? You're kidding me. What about some justice? Nobody likes a pushover. Except, except I don't think that Jesus wants them or us to be pushovers. He's teaching another way, one that gives agency and power back to the very people who have been hurt and scorned and oppressed. He's offering the power to change the whole trajectory of the story. Jesus is not condoning violence or extortion or abuse. He's not asking us to roll over and take it. He's empowering us to step out of what is expected. That is the assumption that we will return violence with violence, respond to vitriol with vitriol, answer scarcity with yet more scarcity. He's saying that we can break that chain, that we can always choose a different way. This is the liberation he brings. What Jesus is teaching in psychological terms is called non-complementary behavior. In short, if we aren't really thinking about what we're doing, we usually engage in complementary behavior. We mirror each other with our behaviors and we follow basic scripts. First, the mirroring. If a friend speaks to you warmly, you're likely to respond with warmth. If someone shows up ready to debate, you're likely to spar back. And certainly, if someone is hostile, the most likely response is hostility in return. The second part is the script, namely that one person has power and the other is subordinate. Or one person is teaching and the other is learning. Or one person is caring and another receiving. We fall into these normative scripts and we play them out. And Jesus is calling us to flip the script on all of it. Occasionally, we're called to flip tables, playing out righteous anger. But most of the time, 
it seems. Jesus thinks we can change the way forward simply by flipping the script. To offer warmth and love and generosity and even forgiveness to our enemies. No matter if they are contrite or not. All of these examples he gives serve to flip the script. People who are oppressed and hurt, they're expected to be frustrated and mad and maybe even lash back, which is understandable. And it only further perpetuates the way of violence, of separation, of othering. By responding in an entirely different mode, with love in the face of violence, with generosity in the face of extortion, we change the very trajectory of the unfolding story. Not only that, he's breaking the mold of who defines the interaction. He's offering this agency and this power to the people who have so little who have been through so much, to say, no, hold up. I will not participate in that. You have done that to me, but you cannot make me do it back. We flip the script. Of course, this is wildly easier said than done. My hunch is that this is why Jesus' teaching on the matter is so sweeping. He wants us to do this in all things, all the time. Practice it daily in any and every situation. In conversation, in prayers, in our finances, with our things, on and on. Practice and practice and practice again and again because it will be really frustrating and awkward at first. And we keep practicing so that when at some point down the line we come to that place where we find ourselves in a situation where this matters most, we actually have a chance of remembering this way and living it out. These teachings are our guideposts this is how we practice flipping the script. There are many remarkable stories of people choosing this other way. But there was one that I stumbled across this week that really stuck with me. Perhaps because it was so mundane. Because it could have happened on our patio back by the parish house or at a BART station or anywhere. I heard it on a podcast called Invisibilia, which explores all kinds of human behavior. The story begins with a group of friends who have gathered to share dinner in one of their backyards. It's a warm summer night and they are celebrating. One of them had just opened a new restaurant earlier that week and they were toasting each other and catching up and carrying on. It was just a beautiful night. 
And so they stayed there in the backyard on past dark until it was maybe around 10 o'clock when Michael, one of the people there for dinner, was standing next to his wife and he saw an arm come between him and his wife. And he looked down to see that in that hand there was a long barrel gun. The group got really quiet. The man pointed the gun first at someone else and then to the head of Michael's wife. He demanded their money. Give me your money or I'm going to start shooting. He was very aggressive and Michael believed him. There's one significant problem, which is that none of them had any money. They didn't have anything valuable they could give this man. They were just hanging out in the backyard on a nice summer night. So they started talking to him, trying to persuade him not to shoot. And the first place they went was to guilt. What would your mother think of this? Well, turns out he didn't have a mother. It was not very effective. And it got more and more tense and seemingly more and more dangerous. This was not going to end well. And as they stood there, wringing their hands, one of the women, actually the one he had first pointed the gun at, spoke up. She said, we're here celebrating. Why don't you have a glass of wine? Sit down. The man's face changed. He took the glass and tasted the wine and seemingly in spite of himself, he exclaimed that it was really good wine. <laughs> and so someone poured him some more and then passed him the cheese plate. And then the man put the gun in his pocket and sat down to eat and drink. And after a while, he said, I think I've come to the wrong place. And the group responded with understanding. And they continued on like this, eating and drinking together for, for a good time. And finally, the man rose and he asked for a hug. And he received a few. And then he turned to the whole group and, and asked if he could have a group hug, if they could together. And Michael said, you know, it sure was strange but they all did it. They all hugged as this man apologized to the group and then left the glass of wine still in his hand. Later on that night, after this group of friends had had some time to talk and recover and finish their night together, one of them went out to find the empty wine glass placed just outside the gate to the backyard. Not thrown, not crashed into the bushes, but placed 
return graciously with respect. The script had been flipped and everyone was set free. <laughs> 